0: Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot? I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you? And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls.
0: Oh my God! Oh, my God! Oh, my God!
1: Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com.
0: Every town has a dark side. Your daily TV, news, cast, blog, or social media feed is almost never complete without a story about a missing person. Cases of abduction and disappearances have become a dime a dozen and unfortunately, not all of them are solved. The vanishing of Dorothy Scott in 1980 is still one of the unsolved disappearance-turned-murder cases in California, except this one stands out from the rest. How can a single mother who led a plain, simple, and religious life become the target of such a heinous crime? Added to this, Dorothy and her parents were tormented by mysterious calls before and after she died. Yet police failed to establish credible leads, so her case has remained cold more than 40 years later. I'm Andrew Fitzgerald, and welcome guys to this week's episode of Every Town. Remember to please rate us if you're enjoying our content, and don't forget to tell your friends about us. They'll probably think you're weird, but that's okay. For now, let's head over to Anaheim, California, and look into one of the most unsettling, unsolved disappearances and murders you'll ever hear about that's been denied justice for far too long. Dorothy Jane Scott was the only child of Jacob and Vera Scott of Anaheim, California, born on April 23, 1948. She had always been conservative in nature, even when she turned 18 in the mid-1960s, where many young American women were breaking norms, advocating for equal rights, and having liberated views and lifestyles. She had a relationship with a man named Dennis Terry, and the couple had a son, Sean, born in 1976. And shortly thereafter, the couple's relationship broke down, and Mr. Terry moved to Fairgrove, Missouri, Dorothy and her son opted to live in Stanton, about 20 minutes away from her parents in Anaheim, with her aunt Shanti Jacob Scott. In order to support herself and her son, Dorothy held backroom secretary jobs in two shops operated by a single owner in Anaheim. One was formerly co owned by her father, called the Swinger's Psych Shop which had a real Woodstock vibe to it, selling love beads, lava lamps, and incense. While the other one was Custom John's Head Shop. Dorothy's workplaces were close to her parents' home, so it was convenient for the single mom to leave Sean with his grandparents during her working hours. Miss Scott's family, friends, and co-workers all had good things to say about her. They described Dorothy as a great mom, a wonderful friend, compassionate, and deeply committed to her Christian faith. She didn't go out on dates or attend parties, but would rather stay at home to be with Sean and go regularly to church. Dorothy didn't do drugs, and she abstained from drinking alcohol. At work, she was dependable and organized, as observed by her co-workers... Nothing really all that exciting was happening in Dorothy's life, and her friends would describe it as boring with a capital B. If her life were a painting, all the colors were dull and neutral. But it unexpectedly transitioned into dark hues in May of 1980, when the single mother was besieged by weird phone calls. It was the start of a different kind of excitement now, one that bordered on danger in Dorothy's otherwise bland life. It all started during the first quarter of 1980, when an unknown man kept badgering Dorothy with menacing calls ranging from something sweet to angry messages that contained threats. Miss Scott recognized the voice, but she couldn't place who specifically the mysterious caller was. Perhaps an acquaintance she had exchanged a few words with. There were times when the caller would profess his love for Dorothy, but there was an instance when he expressed his intention to kill her. Then it became clear that the man was Dorothy's stalker. Somewhat obsessed with her, who knew all the details about her life, her daily routine, including clothes she was wearing and people she was with. Did this individual follow her every move? He seemed to know things, only those very close to Dorothy would know. Vera, Dorothy's mother, recounted that one day, the caller instructed Dorothy to go outside because he had something for her. She went outside and saw a single dead rose on her car's windshield. At one point, the man reportedly told her he would get her alone and stated, Okay, now you are going to come my way, and when I get you alone, I will cut you up into bits so no one will ever find you. This chilling call justifiably terrified the single mom but she started feeling unsafe at home or at work, knowing that someone unknown was tracking her activities. It crossed Dorothy's mind to purchase a gun, but she thought it wouldn't be a wise decision with a four-year-old child in the house who might harm himself with it. Instead, the freaked-out mom started taking up karate lessons to defend herself when the situation called for it. The events escalated towards the end of May of 1980. Now 32 years old, Dorothy started her day on May 28th, a Wednesday, like any other ordinary working day. She dropped off her son at her parents' house and informed them of a work meeting at 9pm, so she would be late in picking up Sean. Dorothy then reported to work as usual, but during the staff meeting at Swinger's psych shop, she noticed something unusual in her co-worker, Conrad Bostrin. He looked unwell, complained of pain and had some red swelling on his arm. He clearly needed medical attention, so Dorothy, true to her compassionate nature, volunteered to drive Conrad to the hospital. A colleague, Pam Head, went with them, and since cell phones weren't used yet during the time, Dorothy had to drop by her parents' house in Anaheim to tell them that she was bringing a co-worker to the hospital and she wasn't sure what time she would be back to fetch Sean. She checked on her son, then changed her black scarf to a red one, and off they drove to UC Irvine Medical Center in Miss Scott's white 1973 Toyota station wagon. Mr. Bostron had been bitten by a black widow spider, and the bite had now become infected. A doctor treated him and gave him a prescription to collect from the pharmacy. And while waiting for Conrad to be treated, Dorothy and Pam waited for him in the ER while watching TV and reading magazines. He was released at approximately 11 p.m., and the three office mates briefly separated while Conrad and Pam headed to the pharmacy to fill up his prescription. Dorothy offered to retrieve her car from the parking lot and pick up the two at the hospital entrance so that Conrad need not exert much effort in the walk. She went to the restroom first before heading to the parking lot, and that was the last time Dorothy Scott was ever seen alive. conrad and pam waited at the hospital entrance after getting his prescribed medication thinking that they'd find dorothy waiting with a car but there was no sign of her they decided to walk over to where the car was originally parked but as they made their way they saw dorothy's car racing towards them with headlights on so they couldn't see Dorothy driving or who she was with. The station wagon didn't stop or slow down, but instead entered the road and sped off. It was strange to say the least, but Conrad and Pam speculated Dorothy had an emergency involving her son. They waited at the hospital, hoping that their friend would come back, but when she didn't, they contacted the hospital security who assured them there was no reason for concern given that Dorothy was an adult. However, after a couple hours still without Dorothy, her two colleagues called up Vera and Jacob and asked if their daughter had picked up her son. But the Scott couple too hadn't received word from her, and so it was time to report the vanishing of Dorothy. Dorothy. A few hours later at 4.30am on May 29th, Dorothy's car was discovered in Santa Ana, about 10 miles from the UC Irvine Medical Center. But neither she nor her supposed kidnapper were anywhere nearby. She was apparently abducted by someone who drove the car to an alleyway, set it on fire and left her there, although it wasn't determined yet at that point if Dorothy was still alive. If the police were not concerned before, this discovery certainly alerted them to the seriousness of the case. The Scott family went through the anguish of not knowing exactly what happened to Dorothy after her astonishing disappearance. Their troubles were further compounded by the incessant calls of the anonymous man even after Dorothy was gone. The first call was made a week after the single mother went missing. Vera, who was alone at home at the time, received the call. The caller asked if she was related to Dorothy Scott and when Vera said yes, the caller curtly replied, I've got her. Then hung up the phone. It was the first clue the authorities had linked to Dorothy's disappearance. But pursuing it didn't yield fruitful results, so nothing had brought them closer to finding out what happened to Ms. Scott. Her parents were told by authorities not to go to the media, as it could adversely affect the investigation. But one week without significant progress into her case was just too heartbreaking for her parents to take. Thus, Jacob and Vera gave up waiting for the investigation to prosper, and he called the Orange County Register about their daughter's disappearance. When the paper published a story about the circumstances around the disappearance, the unknown caller also called up the newspaper's managing editor, Pat Riley, on June 12, 1980, and told him, I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having someone else. I killed her. Proving that he was someone who knew her well, the caller detailed that Dorothy was wearing a red scarf, which she changed from a black one, and brought Conrad to the hospital in order to get treatment for a spider bite. He also claimed that Dorothy called him up from the hospital the night that she disappeared. But Pam had disputed that, saying she was with Dorothy the whole time in the hospital. They only briefly went their separate ways when Dorothy went to get her car while Pam accompanied Conrad to the pharmacy. So who was this man who knew so many details that particular fateful night? The call to Mr. Riley undoubtedly baffled the parents and friends of Miss Scott, and Jacob said his daughter had no boyfriend and rarely went out on a date because she held two jobs and had Shauna take care of. As months and years went by, While Dorothy's family waited with bated breath for any outcome of the investigation, the mysterious caller continued taunting her parents. He seemed familiar with Jacob and Vera's routine, so much so that his calls had become a Wednesday afternoon habit for four years, especially when Vera was home alone. He would mentally torture Mrs. Scott by telling her that he had Dorothy or had killed her, The chilling calls only stopped starting in April of 1984, or close to four years since Dorothy disappeared. When the man called in the evening and it was answered by Jacob for the first time, was he scared that Jacob would recognize his voice, or was he spooked upon hearing Jacob's voice? The Scots never changed their phone number, hoping that Dorothy's abductor would allow them to speak with their daughter. Four months after that anonymous call, the Scott couple received an urgent call from the authorities. Dog and human bones were found, and it was possible they belonged to Dorothy. On August 6, 1984 at around 7.15 a.m., Jesse Loza, a construction company foreman, discovered a partially charred adult human skeleton half a mile east of Eucalyptus Drive in northeast Anaheim. He found the bones minutes after joking with his crew to watch out for dead bodies as they readied to lay pipe for telephone lines. The remains were lying beside the partial skeleton of a dog. Initially, Orange County Deputy Coroner Richard Rodriguez speculated that he or she may have been hiking with the dog when something befell them and the cause of death was listed as questionable. The burned nature of the bones was attributed to a brush fire that had swept through the area in the fall of 1982. This led Deputy Coroner Rodriguez to estimate but the bones had been at the site for over two years. The human remains included a complete skull, two femurs, a pelvis, and an arm. These bones were bleached white from the sun, and luckily, the skull was intact and contained a full set of teeth with fillings. Judy Suchy, an anthropologist from Cal State Fullerton, was brought in to help determine the age and sex of the remains as well as run the T through the missing persons database. A turquoise ring and a watch were also found, and the timepiece stopped at 12.30 a.m. on May 29th, about an hour after Conrad and Pam saw Dorothy's vehicle speed out of that hospital. On August 14th, the remains were identified as Dorothy's through dental records, but... Autopsies couldn't determine the cause of her death. Two days after it was confirmed that the remains belonged to Dorothy, the twisted caller rang the Scots home and sickeningly asked, Is Dorothy there? Police were enlisted to tap the phone to determine the caller's location, but he never stayed on the call long enough to do so. On August 22nd, Dorothy was then laid to rest, with her case still open and in limbo. Sadly, no one was ever officially named a suspect in the case, and no arrest has ever been made. Dennis Terry, Sean's father, was looked into but was ruled out as a suspect since he was in Missouri at the time of Dorothy's disappearance. In a 2017 blog interview with Sean, he named Mike Butler, a male co-worker of his mom and a person obsessed with her, who murdered Dorothy. He would gotten to know Miss Scott through his sister. Mr. Butler was alleged to be part of an occult that espoused on alternative religious beliefs aside from being an eccentric. Sean also claimed that law enforcement had their eyes on this guy but never had enough evidence to arrest or charge him. It's unfortunate that the key players in the case have all died. On Dorothy's birthday in 1994, her father Jacob passed away. Her mom followed suit eight years later in 2002, and the strongly alleged suspect, Mr. Butler, also died in 2014. It's been 42 years, and the case has remained as cold as ever. Dorothy Jane Scott and her family never got the justice they deserved, or perhaps just not yet. So that's it for this week's episode of Every Town. If you want even more stories from us, or you want to watch these as TV episodes, then go check out our YouTube channel or podcast called Scary Mysteries. Tune in next week for another episode filled with scary, strange, and mysterious stories, guys. Because who knows? Maybe your town will be next.